Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Empowered Women's Guide to Better Health with Dr. Mary O'Connor. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle, with over a million downloads and counting. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your Master Certified Coach and Midlife Mentor, and I'm so glad to be here with you again. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but this is episode 300. It's a milestone episode for sure. I give a lot of thought to how I mark the 100th episode milestones, and I did the same today. So episode 100, going back a few, it was all about midlife reflections about making a commitment to create 100 episodes. I mean, when I created those first 100 episodes, I was so curious about what it took to do it, right? So to set a goal to honor your commitments in your calendar, your commitments to yourself, your commitments to the audience, all of it. And I did it. I made a plan and I did it. And I thought that was worthy of reflection. (laughs) Now, episode 200, that was about celebrating long-term friendships in midlife. And I love that episode. I created a panel of some of my close friends called the Smokin' Gals. We're a group of women. We've been friends for over 30 years and we get together regularly in a very organized way. And so that's a curious thing too, right? Something to be curious about. How do you make that happen? What's it like to be a long-term friend? What's it like to get together as a small group for a long period of time in midlife? So that was awesome. And now here we are, episode 300. And I thought, again, it was important to really think about the focus for this 100th episode. It is an important episode about women's health, specifically about an important new book called Taking Care of You, Women's Guide to Better Health. You're going to love this interview, and I know you're going to think differently and maybe even learn an important perspective or two about your health and also women's health in general. So good. Okay, now there's also two things I want to tell you. First, I want to make sure that you know about a free gift that I have for you called the Get Unstuck mini video training. In less than 10 minutes, you'll discover what the main secret is to unsticking yourself and making your dreams come true. You know, actually creating what you want in your life. That's all. Just that little goal. (laughs) Less than 10 minutes? Seriously, I'm going to give you some insight that you may not fully appreciate. Just head over to www.midlifevideo.com. And second, I have a new opportunity to tell you about. I have a new sister podcast coming soon called Women in the Middle Entrepreneurs, and I'm currently looking for guests. So if you're a woman in the middle who's 50 plus and also an entrepreneur or business owner who is actively dealing with navigating around and through classic midlife related obstacles and challenges while you're trying to run your business, this new podcast is especially for you. If you're interested in learning more about how to be a guest, head over to www.midlifeinterviews.com and apply. There's a lot more information there so you can see if you're a good fit for this show. Okay, my friend, let me introduce you to my amazing guest on the podcast today. Today's episode is all about how to empower women to take better care of themselves 
with an amazing new book called Taking Care of You, The Empowered Woman's Guide to Better Health by Mary I. O'Connor, MD, and Canwall L. Hock, MS. My guest today is one of the authors, Dr. Mary O'Connor, who is a nationally recognized leader in health equity and innovations in the delivery of musculoskeletal care. She is co-founder and chief medical officer of Vori Health, a physician-led virtual musculoskeletal company on a mission to empower all humanity to better health. She is chair of the board of directors of Movement is Life, a nonprofit multi-stakeholder coalition committed to addressing musculoskeletal health disparities. A past Olympian in U.S. women's rowing, yes, you heard me correctly, she is passionate in her promotion of the power of movement to improve health. That makes sense. Mary has long championed diversity and inclusion in orthopedics and broken many barriers to women in the overwhelmingly male profession. Her recent book, the one we're talking about today, Taking Care of You, The Empowered Women's Guide to Better Health by Mayo Clinic Press, supports women advocating for their own equitable health care. A recipient of the Mayo Clinic Distinguished Clinician Award, she is Professor Emerita of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic and a past professor of orthopedics and rehabilitation at the Yale School of Medicine. In addition to Movement is Life, she serves on the board of directors of Vori Health and Bone Support AB, a Scandinavian orthobiologics company. You're going to get a lot from this interview. Mary shared her key motivation for this book, that she's seen too many women not have their voices and concerns heard. I think you'll probably agree that we all need this book. So please take a listen and enjoy this interview. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for joining me on the Women in the Middle podcast. Susie, delighted to be with you and your listeners. I'm so glad you're here because you have some important information to share. Your new book, Taking Care of You, The Empowered Women's Guide to Better Health, is out. Thank God, because there's a lot of confusing stuff out there when it comes to women's health. It is so confusing, let alone menopause. So tell us a little bit about your book. We want to hear all the details. Well, thank you. The book is designed to really be a support for women so that women can be better advocates for their own health. And the book highlights so many common clinical conditions and how they impact women differently than men. So most of the time, people think of women's health as kind of what we call in medicine, the bikini areas, you know, (laughs) breast health or reproductive health. But women's health is our, our whole health, right? And people will not appreciate that there are so many differences in the way uh, conditions and diseases present in women compared to men. And, you know, like heart disease is a perfect example of this, right? Women experience heart disease different than men. The biology of the, of heart disease in women is different. It's much more small vessel than large. I mean, I'm not going to, I won't go into all the medical details, uh, but why does that matter? Because if you're, if you have chest pain or discomfort and you go to an emergency department and the physician who's seeing you doesn't know that, then you're going to walk out the door being told you have indigestion and not being evaluated for actual heart disease. And we know this. There's lots of studies and peer-reviewed research that shows there's this disparity. And so women need to be empowered 
to say in that situation, do you think it could be my heart? Right. Wow. So that they can, so they can prompt the evaluation. We re- we really have to have more understanding and knowledge of our health and how our health and the conditions that impact us can be different than for men. You know what, Mary, I, even as you're saying this, I consider myself well-read and pretty much in tune. I'm floored because I've, I'm tuning into the menopause message where we have to be very, um, we, we absolutely have to advocate for ourselves with menopause symptoms. But even as you're saying it, heart disease is the more common example. Most of us, I don't know if it's most, but certainly I remember learning that the research was primarily based on men. But when you're talking about like the broad range of health concerns and how it all is, it's relevant that we're women. That's I, I haven't thought about it that way. Yeah. And, you know, Susie, there, the research um, inclusion of women in clinical trials has improved, uh, particularly here in the States because of some legislation that was passed by Congress. I mean, can you imagine we in the States, we have to have Congress pass a law that says, by the way, you can't exclude 50% of the population from clinical trials. Now, but, but, but let's take a step back and say, but why were women excluded? Women were historically excluded for two reasons. One, researchers were like, hey, you know, that woman, she's having a menstrual cycle and her hormones are fluctuating and that could affect the metabolism of this drug. And that's just too complicated. So we don't want to test this drug on women. And women who are pregnant are considered a protected class, like the, you just trying to do research on pregnant women is appropriately much, much more difficult because of the safeguards that you need to put in place. Okay. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is when the, the, the drug is released and doctors are prescribing it, guess what? They're prescribing it to both men and women. And the women are taking the medication that hasn't been adequately tested on them. And that's why we see the vast majority, I'm talking about the majority, like maybe it's probably around 80% of drugs that are pulled off the market by the FDA are from are due to adverse effects in women. Now, let me just highlight oh that. How? Okay. Now, for a medication that has gone through the entire FDA approval process, which is millions and millions and millions of dollars in research and the the uh, regulatory process to be pulled off the market is a major event. So these adverse events that are occurring because of the medication, right, are happening now because all of a sudden there's thousands of people getting this medication, not just hundreds in a clinical trial, but many thousands and lots of women. And now the adverse events, the complications of that drug in women is becoming apparent. So more work needs to be done in this process to make sure that medicines that are developed and, you know, medicines can be life-saving. So we want new medications to be developed that are effective, but we also need them to be safe and they need to be safe for women as well as men. Wow. So 
I mean, every time you speak, I'm just speechless. <laughs> so I, I have to process what you've just said. Um, yeah, we're farther ahead, but we're not, we're not completely where we need to be with women's health. So another thing that I know, um, you mentioned in your notes that motivated you to get involved with a project like this is the way that midlife women in particular defer their health needs and prioritize those of family over their own. And so tell me a little bit more about that and how this book can help. So, you know, um, I've been there. I'm still there. <laughs> you know, my my children are adult are adults, but that that doesn't that doesn't mean that there's still not uh, the need for me to support them, particularly if there's any medical issues, right? Which is appropriate. I'm a physician. They should come and say, "Hey, mom, what about this?" <laughs> and and my mother is, you know, 94, and um, we just lost my mother-in-law a year or so ago at 101, and she had lived with us. So I mean, like, like the, this is we experience this, and the majority of the basically the responsibility falls on the daughters in the family yes, and their mother. So we're the sandwich generation. We're experiencing this caring for our elderly parents and caring for still our children. And then we have this, our spouse or our partner, right? And the majority of health decisions in a family are made by the mother. The mother is the one directing, orchestrating all of this. So for the reason why uh, I think this book is so helpful is that in any of those scenarios, right, you can go to our book and you can look up one of the 55 common clinical condition chapters and say, okay, I've got to take my mother to see the doctor because she has COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or she has asthma, or she has migraines, or she has dementia, right? What are the things that I need to know about what's the condition? How does it start? What causes it? How is it treated? How does it impact women differently than men? What are the questions that I should be asking the healthcare team? And then pearls of wisdom from the expert contributor of that chapter. So my co-author and I, Conwall Hawk, who's a medical anthropologist, which, uh, you know, fabulous uh, co-author with me, um, we invited 111 women contributors, experts in their field to write many of these uh, chapters that were outside of our particular scope of expertise. And so you're getting kind of the pearls of wisdom from the experts. So the book is really Uh, designed to be a resource that you come back to again and again and again for conditions that could impact you or, or one of your loved ones. Exactly. And you know, the other thing that is so difficult, we think now that we have the Google that everything is just one click away, but we, most people don't have the literacy to be able to really understand what is, uh, what's the best piece of information out there. So it's so overwhelming. The Google's amazing. We do love the Google, but this is so much better to have a go-to resource. And you mentioned those 55, um, uh, did you say disease? Common clinical clinical conditions. Thank you. (laughs) I'll just read a few of them because it's such an amazing resource. 
lung cancer, lupus, migraines, multiple sclerosis, neck pain, osteoporosis, painful sex. Um, I'm skipping the ones I can't pronounce. Shoulder pain, stroke, (laughs) urinary incontinence. Oh my God, that one comes up so much um, with midlife women and talking about it and laughing and then talking about it more because we're laughing, all of that. Um, And uh, urinary tract infections and and Mm -hmm. so many more things that you're dealing with. But to have this idea of having a one-stop shop that's reliable and has all of these physicians involved, it's really something. Thank you. Um, The goal of the book is really to empower women to be better advocates for their own health. They can't, you know, if you're not in medicine, you, you can't go. It would be really, I think it would be really hard to go in and ask the right questions. It's the same for me, you know, outside of my musculoskeletal orthopedic space, right? I may be able to ask somewhat better questions if someone who's not in medicine about a different kind of condition, let's say a migraine, for example, but I'm not a migraine expert, right? So, so it's really to help us be able to receive better health care because unfortunately, women still do not receive the same quality of care as men. Okay. What do you mean by that? There are health inequities and health disparities. And first of all, one of the big things is that, you know, women do not have their voices heard the same as men, and women do not have their symptoms taken as seriously as men. And there's a lot of cultural bias related to that. Okay. So when a woman comes in and says, you know, my pain is eight out of 10, and a man comes in and says his pain is eight out of 10, we are culturally sensitized to think that the man is really in pain and the woman is somewhat exaggerating. Wow. Because because that's what women, I know, but I mean, these things, these, these societal biases exist in medicine because medicine is made up of people that exist in our society and our culture. And then for women of color, there's the added layer of bias related to race and ethnicity. Wow. Every time you speak, I mean, they're speechless or just saying, wow. Wow. Oh my God. Um, I love that you're framing the usefulness of the book, not just for us individually, but also for the women we care for, our children, our parents. And it's, you're right. Like to know what questions to ask is so important. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what we don't know. We know what we can find, but we don't, most of us don't have the literacy to assess what we find. And it's just so important to have a resource like this. It really, really is. So um, what motivated you to do it? Because you are an orthopedic surgeon. I've been in the health equity space for a long time. I chair a national nonprofit called Movement is Life. We're focused on eliminating um, health disparities, particularly related to physical activity and spine and joint pain, because we know that 
joint pain and spine pain is much more is more prevalent in women and that so these disparities impact women individuals of color and those in rural america and i suspect it's it it's there's probably some similarities for your canadian listeners as well although your health system is you know as probably better access than what we have in the states for for uh underserved individuals but back to the point so I have uh, been in this health equity space for a long time, and I, of course, have been a minority in my own profession since I entered orthopedics. And back when I started my residency program, there were even fewer women in orthopedics. And unfortunately, still, there are not enough women and certainly enough, not enough individuals of color um, in orthopedics. So why does that matter? That matters because <laughs> for many reasons, but it just matters in terms of patient trust and working on overcoming our biases. So, you know, the the more diverse a group is, the dynamics of that group will change so that there is just inherently less bias and more openness to differences that people have. So when you have a group that's very homogenous, then it, you know, the likelihood of bias is greater. Now, I have to say, I have to put a little, you know, caveat to that. I don't believe that my predominantly white male orthopedic surgery colleagues are purposely trying to not provide great health care right. to women and individuals of color. Okay. I do not think that this is intentional. However, here's what happens. Because and, and I and part of my motivation for this book is in my own clinical practice, right? I just see, see this over and over and over again. In comes the woman, let's say she's 45, she's obese or at least overweight, she has knee pain, maybe she has some high blood pressure or diabetes. All of this, and she's coming to see me because of knee pain. Now I look at her and I say, girlfriend, you need to lose weight, okay? You need to lose weight because every 10 extra pounds of weight is an additional 30 to 60 pounds of pressure on your knee joint. And you're getting some early arthritis in your knee, and that's part of the reason why your knee hurts. And for you to avoid, potentially avoid knee replacement surgery down the road, this is what you need to do. The challenge is, is that we do not give patients the support that they need to make those lifestyle and behavior changes, right? It's not like this woman doesn't know she's overweight. Of course she does. It's not like she doesn't know that she should move more or be more physically active. Of course she does, right? But she's dealing with maybe elderly parents, kids at home. She's Maybe she's lower socioeconomic status and she's just struggling, right? to keep a roof over her head and food in the kids, you know, food on the table. So what happens is in that moment, the message to the patient is just go lose weight, come back, you know, go lose weight. Yeah. When that message is delivered by the white male surgeon to the woman, or particularly a white male surgeon to a woman of color, right? It, it can come across as being more patronizing and then 
it, you know, the patient, it, certainly if it was me, I'm, I would probably be less receptive to that. Mm. And, but more importantly, we're not supporting those patients with the tools that they need. And, and the orthopedic surgeon isn't the right instrument, right, for supporting that patient on a journey of weight loss. And I'm just using that as one example. That's so a great example. Yeah. Yeah. Patients need to trust their doctor, right? Because it's not possible for a patient to understand all that there is about medicine. That's why doctors have to go to medical school and residency training. And that's why it takes so long to become a physician. So you need to have trust that your doctor is basically putting your needs first to quote my Mayo Clinic heritage, put the needs of the patient first and, and giving you the best advice based on their medical knowledge and hopefully based on taking into account your own personal values and preferences. Wow. I think I can distill it to women don't often feel their voices are heard. And the reason why that's so important, for example, in my own life, my sister-in-law, who was like a sister to me, died of medical complications taken care of by very skilled medical professionals. And I believe in with my entire heart that they simply, at the beginning of her journey, didn't listen to her. And if they had listened to her and understood her pain and the severity of her symptoms, which I believe they minimized, she would not have died. Okay. Mm. This is all about hearing and hearing women and believing them or hearing the, the medical professional, hearing somebody that's different than you and believing them. Okay. There's so many stories out there about this, you know, um, I mean, during the pandemic, there was a an African-American physician. She was hospitalized with COVID. Um, she kept saying she had more pain. The doctors are poo-pooing her. They're trying to, you know, discharge her. Then finally she gets, they do another scan and they, they understand, oh my goodness, look at all this disease now in her chest and going up into her lungs. And now they're willing to give her the pain medicine that she had been asking for. Wow. Uh, I mean, I actually wrote a column about this, but it, 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 she subsequently died, actually, of complications related to COVID. I mean, it's just like we, we just have to believe our patients. The me- medical professionals have to stop and work on believing what their patient is telling them. And if you're the patient and you feel that your doctor or nurse practitioner is not believing you, please, please go find someone else. Right. Right. So what you have have to have that relationship because I think I want to trust that that there's more uh, attention to listening and we need more awareness that we may not be listened to. Like that is a huge part of what you're sharing today. As women, we may not be listened to by the medical profession in the same way that men are or in a way that will really help us. So to trust our gut and ask those questions, if we think we're not being listened to or believed. Correct. Uh, Another little uh, gem of a study. So they did a big study in Boston looking at older patients who were admitted for common medical admissions like pneumonia, 
heart, chest pain, things like that. And so they had big numbers of patients and they looked at the gender of the uh, lead physician, the hospitalist physician. And they found that if the lead doctor in charge of that patient was a woman, (laughs) the risk of dying was statistically significantly less. Okay. Now, okay. That's factual. That's a fact. That's a research finding, right? And when that came out, my first thought was like, oh, thank God. That's the result. Because if it wasn't, we would be back to this women can't be, women aren't smart enough to be doctors. Women aren't as good as men as being doctors. I mean, we would be back to that crazy BS conversation, right? Now comes this finding that says, whoa, a woman doctor actually could be better for you. Now, no one understands why that is. And certainly that study should be repeated in other centers, you know, larger data to try to see if those findings can be replicated. That's what science does. You do a study, you find something, then you seek to have it validated elsewhere. But the authors of that study proposed that perhaps, again, can't explain why, just can say, here's the finding, that the women physicians listened more and they were they were more readily able to pivot to a different diagnosis or consider something different if the patient wasn't doing well. They stayed less anchored to their original thought, which in my um uh, just in in my brain translates to less ego. Mm-hmm. Right? So they had they were, it was easier for them to say maybe this isn't the right diagnosis. I need to reconsider what's going on with the patient. Maybe tra- change the treatment plan. So <laughs> see that all these differences translate into impacting you and me as patients and our loved ones. And so that's why, again, I come back to this simple concept. If you don't feel as a patient that your doctor listens to you and that you can ask questions, then you don't have the right doctor. That's a clear message. Dr. Mary O'Connor, thank you so much for all of this. How can people get a hold of this amazing book, Taking Care of You, The Empowered Women's Guide to Better Health? Oh, Susie, thank you very much for asking. You can find it online. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, which I affectionately call Target because you know <laughs> because I spent so much money there. Uh, you can get it online at Mayo Clinic Press because the book is published uh, by Mayo Clinic. And I'll just make a note that you know proceeds go to support education and research at Mayo Clinic. So I I hope that. Um, your listeners can find something of value. Those that, that purchase the book, uh, it's also available on Kindle. Uh, um, so for those that like audiobooks and use it really as a resource, we wrote it so that it could be shared, you know, even passed down, so to speak, from mother to daughter or mother to grandmother or w- whatever to, to really help empower women to better health. That's the purpose. I can't go and erase 
the terrible health inequities and disparities that are impacting women and particularly women of color tomorrow. But what we could do with this book and the purpose of this this book was to try and impact those disparities by helping the women be better advocates for their own health. You've done an amazing job with that. I also just want to say that the um, the way the book is formatted is very accessible. The illustrations are not complicated. It's not like a medical encyclopedia looking thing that we grew up with, but it is like such a, an amazing reference guide, uh, but very, very accessible, very easy to read with lots of bullet points, beautiful illustrations. Um, well done. And those pearls of wisdom, I mean, that is just, that's such a beautiful thing to have access to so many brilliant minds with these kinds of sensitivities. Uh, so the website is www.takingcareofyoubook.com. And of course, that'll be in the summary notes and you can find it at all the places. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. You've really done some important work. It's going to affect so many women. Thank you so much. Susie, thank you so much. And, you know, congratulations to you for all the work that you're doing to advance health for women. I mean, we're all in this together. And healthier women make better partners and mothers and, and strengthen communities. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to diminish in any way the importance of, of dads or, or men as partners, but I go back to it's the women. The the women are the most important keystone. Everybody listening is smiling and nodding and being so um, grateful that you said that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this episode. I love that I was able to help Mary get the message out about this important book for women's health. I am so grateful that I have a podcast platform like this to bring information about something like this to you. And I hope you now understand why I was so speechless for so much of this interview. (laughs) Like I said before, wow. I mean, everything she said was fascinating and some was shocking and everything was so important. So if you didn't know before, now you know how important it is to empower yourself as a woman in the middle about your health. Okay, this podcast is all about how to love your life again after 50. It's really all about coaching you to be more aware, more intentional, and to incorporate mindfulness into your life as a regular practice. And mindfulness is the key ingredient to regret-proofing your life. This is how you put yourself on your agenda. My focus as your midlife coach is to help you get unstuck, clear, and excited about your life again. Being stuck can be rough, but it doesn't have to mean you're completely immobilized. (laughs) It could just mean that you're not where you want to be in your life in general or your business. Or maybe it's the intersection of the two. Another common reason you might feel off is that you're just too darn busy and have no work-life balance, whatever that is. The bottom line is that you know you're meant for more and you don't want to waste valuable time. So if you're ready to make some important changes and want to be way more clear about what you want and how to get there, I can help. You just have to learn the skills to move forward, and you can do that with some masterful coaching, a top-notch curriculum, an infusion of creativity, and a warm, fun, and awesome community of like-minded women. I would love to help you create the success you're craving. That's why I created the Women in the Middle Academy. You can absolutely be more fulfilled than ever before. So email me your questions, and let's talk about it. Go ahead and book your momentum call at www.womeninthemiddleacademy.com. 
For show notes and links, head over to www.susierosenstein.com and click the podcast tab and look for episode 300. And if you're interested in applying to be a guest on my new upcoming podcast, Women in the Middle Entrepreneurs, head over to www.midlifeinterviews.com and apply. Thanks so much for listening. It's time for you to put yourself first, one thought at a time. I'm Susie Rosenstein, and I'll talk to you next week. 